This is Our Prisons The Answer, a monthly show on Justice Radio with your host, Leo Putz. Today I'm talking with Carly McCullough, a clinically informed restorative practices facilitator, social worker, and consultant who centers connection, authenticity, and humor in her practice. And Cage Johnson, a youth justice liaison and sexual harm response design lead at Restorative Justice Institute of Maine about restorative justice responses to sexual harm what got them into this work, what services and supports currently exist, and what they would like to see in the future. I'm Leo Hilton, a currently incarcerated resident at Maine State Prison, PhD student at George Mason University's Jimmy and Roseline Carter School on Peace and Conflict Resolution, and a restorative justice scholar practitioner of six years. I'm deeply passionate about creating accountability and healing-focused community-based alternatives to our current criminal legal system. This show explores how we keep our communities safe and asks the question, are prisons the answer? So I come to the field of restorative justice as someone who has caused egregious harm to people in my community. Along my healing journey, I have come to understand the deep and expansive impacts of the harm I caused and the obligation I have to interrupt cycles of harm and cultivate opportunities for repair and healing whenever and wherever possible. I also realize the extreme sensitivity and care that must be taken when discussing interpersonal violence and particularly sexual harm. With that in mind, I encourage our listeners to please take care of yourself while listening to this episode. If you need to pause, walk away, or stop listening entirely, please feel free to do so. This episode is meant to show how restorative justice can provide powerful opportunities for accountability, healing, and repair, even in the aftermath of these most personal types of harm, not to cause more harm in the process. Turning to our guests, I would like to start with Carly. Can you please share a little about your journey? How did you get to the place of supporting and creating restorative responses to sexual harm? Thank you so much for having me and for that really thoughtful introduction. I became a restorative practitioner, a community-based intervention model, which New York City at the time was really promoting restorative practices and after-school programs. So I got the opportunity to be introduced to um, and trained through that initiative years ago, and then continued my journey. Um, And as I found uh, myself a few years ago, I realized that there was part of this work. I mean, frankly, a friend called and said, hey, somebody asked me if I could, you know, they knew that I'm a restorative practitioner. They asked if I could facilitate this sexual harm process. And I feel really out of my depths. I feel like this could use someone with more mental health training than I have. Um, Also, these are people more from your community than from my community. And so I just thought of you. And so I wonder if you could reach out. And so it was really in partnership with this family that was reaching out that we sort of embarked on this journey together. I think I was wary at first because I had been taught in the restorative justice training that I'd gotten. A lot of it was you can use RJ for everything but sexual harm, everything except for. And it was this real sort of like big, bold asterisk on all the training I'd gotten up until that point. Yet, you know, one of the tenets of, or sort of part of the ethos of restorative practices is just that everything can be dealt with if we're doing it together and following these principles and integrity. And so I believed that something was possible. Around that time, I also had started to see some advertisements circulate in the New York City restorative justice community for a training with Ampersand's restorative justice. And I knew that they specifically centered on sexual harm. And so I started to take that. And so that was really my introduction to, from a sort of heart-based place of figuring it out 
um, without a structure and also then learning that there were some structures that existed that I would, and some wisdom that I could tap into around this because I wasn't at the time aware of anyone else, sort of my area or my RJ community who was applying this towards sexual harm. I'd worked briefly with the DA, uh, with the victim service unit in Brooklyn. We didn't use restorative interventions there. That wasn't something that we did. So it was just really discovering it and then realizing that there really was a community and trying to um, connect with the people who've been doing this. Beautiful. So a really organic introduction to this work uh, that, that, that from the sounds of it really broke the mold of the limitations that some trainings were trying to place on this powerful ethos of restorative justice. Thank you. And Cage, what about you? Yeah, well, first, thank you just so much for having me on the show, Leo. I'm deeply grateful to be here and to be here with both of you. I'm going to get a bit personal here. <laughs> first and foremost, I, when it comes to my journey, I am a survivor of sexual violence. Having experienced that, I was raped by a close friend in college. Um, I underwent a full Title IX investigation. There was no option for restorative justice offered at that time. That didn't exist. I had no idea that restorative justice existed at that time in my life. I ended up becoming really vocal and active on campus after that experience and was connected with other survivors um, and took part in some things like demonstrations, like Carry That Weight, you might be familiar with, which was first done by Emma Sulkowitz at Columbia University as like a demonstrative art performance, carrying her mattress on campus. But we did things like that on campus. I helped to co-facilitate the college's first ever support group created by my friend and fellow survivor for other survivors of sexual violence. From there, I ended up interning at the Sexual Assault Response Services of Southern Maine, and I became a trained sexual assault advocate myself. Since then, I've done that training multiple times. I, I did that work for about a year or so, and all the while, I felt like something really monumental was missing in the services. And I felt as if I couldn't really offer much to the survivors that we served. And it was extremely depressing for me. I ended up leaving that field of work. And I, you know, instead, this was a, a great plot twist in my life. But I focused on gifting myself a good five to six years of landscape gardening, which ended up being extremely healing for my well-being and the trauma that I had experienced. In the meantime, I experienced another sexual assault during that time period really felt motivated at that point to like get back into this work. And, you know, this was all prior to Toronto Burke's Me Too, like really gaining widespread attention in 2017, uh, Alyssa Milano's post that like went viral. And at that time, you know, following the two rapes that I had experienced, I was in a place I embodied a lot of anger. And if, the, if there were an island that we could just put all of the world's rapists on, I would have been for it. I obviously embody a completely different view now, hence why I am here. I like to joke that I am in recovery from participating in cancel culture. You know, from there, I was just heavily involved in like exploring art as a means of survivor healing. I created some interactive art pieces in the community, in my community for survivors to kind of name, speak out about harm done to them and ended up creating a body of work as my, my final project in college called the Survivor Manifesto, which was essentially an anthology in which many survivors, all who I knew personally, uh, along with myself, contributed a variety of like written and visual work. I look back in that entire time, I realized that I was always interested in non-traditional, like non-systems based ways for survivors to explore healing. It wasn't until 2019 that I like learned of restorative justice. That's not that long ago. I received yeah, an email inviting me to take part in a survivor leadership group seeking to create a pilot restorative justice program for survivors of sexual violence. 
And so I took part in that group from 2019 into 2020 through the Restorative Justice Institute of Maine, where I now work with an incredible group of survivors. And a lot of that work, you know, was put on pause as the world was when the pandemic hit. But at the very start of 2022, I was like officially hired on um, as staff at RJIM, where I now work and facilitate and am a sexual harm response design lead. So just working really hard to eventually have restorative justice processes be the widespread, like common accessible response to sexual violence for survivors. <laughs> such a powerful story. Thank you for the courage of leading with such a personal approach to this. And that really, for me, speaks to your healing journey, which is truly inspirational. So sticking with you, Cage, if we could, what does our current system offer? You, you, you spoke to a little bit about what was missing. So what does our current system offer and what does it not offer in support of victim survivors of sexual harm? Yeah, this, I mean, this feels like a loaded question, but I think our current systems, you know, they're very systems based, meaning they do rely really heavily on the criminal legal system. Our systems are, they're carceral, they're carceral, they're punitive. They're often fostering more harm to those involved. When it comes to like our local sexual assault response services, those organizations, they primarily offer systems-based support, which looks like a variety of things like, you know, trained advocates supporting survivors with things such as hospital accompaniments, filing police reports, filing for things in court, such as like protection from abuse orders, advocating alongside survivors during court, things like that. You know, the orgs all offer a helpline, which is an excellent resource to be able to speak to an advocate anytime, 24-7. I encourage, you know, survivors and loved ones of survivors affected to use the helpline if they ever need to. Advocate support and knowledge is inv invaluable. Advocates can, they can make referrals for therapists. That's great. The orgs can also offer, you know, they offer support groups to survivors as well. At the same time, so some of the problems that I see is that we all know how long certain like therapy referrals and access to those kinds of services take. It is not quick <laughs> to get resourced that way. And in terms of support groups, the trouble there is that for whatever a variety of reasons, I often found that the support groups are not always actively running. They're not always a thing that exists. So there's a lack of support there. And I want to be really clear, like, I can't speak to each of the county's organizations, like specific current offerings. There might be more I'm not aware of, but speaking to my own experience with what these orgs offer, you know, as, you know, coming from my experience as an advocate offering services and as a survivor seeking them previously, I can say there's definitely a gap when it comes to non-systems-based support. And one of our, you know, local sexual assault response services had recently begun a program last year called Hope and Healing which was offering non-system-based, non-traditional forms of support to survivors. And without, for unknown reasons, that program was cut earlier this year. I was super disappointed to see that happen. I, I you know, I'm standing in a place where I see those non-traditional, non-systems-based support offerings as being vital because most survivors are not reporting or don't want to deal with police. They don't want to go through the legal system. And I don't blame them. These systems are generally not benefiting survivors like across the board. Convictions are rare. Going through court is often traumatizing. So bottom line, if most survivors are not utilizing the current systems, there's a gap and we service providers need to offer different approaches and responses to sexual violence for survivors to be utilizing. And we know restorative justice is desired. We, we receive many calls from survivors seeking a process and we've received a number, like many referrals for cases involving sexual harm. So the need is there. Thank you so much for that really in-depth look from different perspectives as both an advocate and a survivor. This is Our Prisons The Answer, a monthly show on Justice Radio with your host, Leo Pilsen. 
Today, I'm talking with Carly McCullough, a clinically informed restorative practices facilitator, social worker, and consultant, and Cage Johnson, a youth justice liaison and sexual harm response design lead about restorative justice responses to sexual harm. What got them into this work, what services and supports currently exist, and what they would like to see in the future. And so we left off with Cage sharing from their experience as both an advocate and a survivor of sexual harm about what does and does not exist in the current system for support. Turning to Carly, if you could share with us, what does the current system offer and what does it not offer in support of victim survivors of sexual harm? I am so grateful for Cage's uh, wisdom, especially as it relates to the geographic area that you're in. The geographic area that I'm in and familiar with is in New York State um, and New York City. And so I can share a little bit. I think it is tricky when we're talking about the criminal legal system because there are elements of it that can vary. There are courtrooms or judges that can make a really big difference in terms of how that criminal legal system works for a particular victim survivor. I think I'm going to be speaking more broadly to just the way that I have, where I have seen it not meet need. We'll just start there, which is that the criminal legal system is not, its purpose is not to meet victim survivor needs. You know, the criminal legal system, the laws, prosecutors, police are to document when uh, there's been an offense against the state. Right. So uh, one thing that uh, a lot of victim survivors encounter if they choose to report to the police, if they choose to meet with the prosecutor and press charges, is that it very quickly turns into a case between the author of harm and the state or locale. And they are used as evidence. Their experience is essentially evidence. They're used to further the case of the prosecutors against the author of harm. I think that's really a wild experience for a lot of survivors to go, wait, this isn't about me at all. This is just about you winning or punishing, you know, and so we certainly know the sort of carceral punitive mind. But when we think about it in terms of prosecutors, that their job is to get a charge that sticks. And that a lot of DAs are um, elected officials. And so the more prosecutions they get, the more it looks like someone's being tough on crime. New York City in particular has a particular legacy um, of law enforcement and politicians. Uh, right now we have a mayor who's uh, a former cop. And so there's a lot in terms of the relationship between those things and who who is trying to be served. I'm sure that we could find a survivor who would say that the mayor was being served in their case more than their own needs were. So I think that's a real challenge. Um, I also think that a lot of the services that are available inside the criminal legal system are supposed to be available are the same as if you get your phone stolen. So it's like you get a meal voucher and a bus ticket uh, the day you have to testify in front of grand jury or something like that. There aren't necessarily those other things baked in. Um, and so again, it's a, you know, with all the complexity and intentionality that you spoke about sexual harm and, and how multi-layered and deep and impactful that experience can be, the system does not particularly treat them overall in that any sort of tenderness or intentionality. Um, another thing that's really challenging about it is that we know that the vast majority of instances of sexual harm are between two people who had cared about each other. One of the challenges I saw when I was working inside of a victim services unit was how challenging it is for people who are experiencing intimate partner violence which is I want the violence to stop. I don't want this person to have to encounter the criminal legal system. So that's true in terms of romantic partnership. We're also talking, you know, there's just tremendous evidence to suggest that the amount of sexual harm that happens inside of biological families is tremendous. 
um, when we think about the amount of sexual harm that occurs against sex workers. The system is not was not designed um, for nuanced experiences. And it doesn't treat experiences or survivors in a nuanced way. It does not treat authors of harm in a nuanced way. Often victims and survivors are expecting a more supportive experience. And it works in all of the ways it's designed to against authors of harm, which is that all the bad is located in you. The badness of the thing you did is located inside of you. It's not systemic or cultural at all. You must be a bad apple. Let's get you out of here. That is really not supportive of anyone's humanity. In terms of more granular things, some of the funding that exists for restorative practices around sexual harm is founded through VAWA and is often gender specific, often cisgender specific, specifically for cisgender women. That rolls with the pattern in this country and the sort of fixation on the harm against white cis women as being the only harm, um, the only form of sexual harm that occurs. And of course, it occurs to cis white women like myself. And it happens in every community. And in New York City, there, I think in part because um, there are these huge asterisks, warning labels on RJ trainings to not use it towards sexual harm. There aren't that many practitioners. And so if someone is not interested in going through the system and they don't want to report, then where do they go? And New York City is, you know, has institutes and like really like it's a, there's a lot going on there. And so for people who are looking for a type of this type of service, it's very unclear how to find it. So definitely um, a lot there and a lot that is missing. Restorative justice has a very open place that it needs to reside. That, that there is power there to meet and fill these gaps that both of you have been talking about. Carly, if we could stick with you just for a moment, if you can um, share, how do you see restorative justice serving as a means of violence prevention and as an avenue of healing for both victim survivors and those who have caused sexual harm? One of the things that's really stuck with me um, that Alyssa Ackerman said when I went through the Ampersands RJ training model was that the research really shows that what victim survivors are looking for at the core is to make sure that the person who authored the harm understands uh, that it was harmful and absolutely never does it again. That that's really the, the the core need that many survivors end up articulating. So in terms of violence prevention, I think people, you know, we aren't taught any of us in this country, whether or not we've been authors of harm, recipients of harm, or just breathing this air. We are not, we are taught, we really aren't taught to talk about sex at all. And then we're not taught to talk about trauma at all. And then we're really not taught to, we're taught very clearly not to talk about sexual trauma. All of this language, it's a real, from a social workplace, we call it psychoeducation, like learning about what's happening in our brains and bodies in a moment. But there's a lot of that that happens as part of a restorative process. And all of that, the getting rid of the stigma, that learning, that knowledge, it spreads and it spreads in little conversations you have or the person who comes up to you at a holiday party and won't leave you alone and you realize that they're there, they can just sort of tell that you would be a safe person to tell about their experience. All this information, the violence prevention really spreads. So even if people are not um, physically present for a restorative process around sexual harm, communities are very much impacted by them. So Cage, what do you see, right? How do you see restorative justice serving as a means of violence prevention and as an avenue of healing for both victim survivors and those who have caused sexual harm? 
I mean, first I'd just say like, this is the amazing thing about restorative justice is that it does serve as like both an avenue for healing for survivors and as a means of violence prevention and healing, like for those who've caused sexual harm, you know, restorative justice allows for those involved to be authentic and to have autonomy. Those are some of the biggest like pillars <laughs> that are maybe missing in our current systems. I want to speak to benefits for both parties. And that said, I, I also want to clarify, I think this is important for the conversation that I don't want to feed into this false dichotomy too, that survivors and those who have caused harm are mutually exclusive because that's certainly not always the case. And oftentimes those identities are intertwined. And so I will be speaking like, you know, in terms of, you know, for survivors or for those who've caused harm, but they are not, it's not a binary, <laughs> you know, in terms of survivors, I see restorative justice offering a means to be at the forefront of one's experience. I see the process itself as being self-determined and survivor-led. Having the opportunity to have an entire process be centered around your experience and your voice and the impacts you've experienced, what you're desiring out of a restorative justice process, all of that being at the center of the process that's actually like leading the process is very different than how navigating the criminal legal system feels, <laughs> like completely, maybe opposite even. Survivors, you know, have very little to no control over how that goes. I think that's the most beautiful thing about the restorative justice process for survivors is like being able to have that autonomy and that level of empowerment and determining your level of participation in a process and being heavily supported in community by community during a process. Those are huge. And, and I, I won't speak, I can't speak for all survivors. We can't do it. I think what we most commonly hear is that, you know, folks are wanting to have their experience heard, validated. They want to be believed. They want apology and they want change. They want promise of, you know, like these are the things that we're commonly hearing that folks are seeking. And all of that gets to be built in to a restorative justice process in a safe way. <laughs> I think for those who've caused harm, you know, our current systems, prisons are not re rehabilitative. I've already said this, I'm preaching to the choir. Prisons are inherently violent systems that perpetuate further violence. Data shows us that folks in prison continue to experience violence. If our goal, our hope as a society, which I believe most of us can agree to, is that is, you know, to reduce and prevent sexual violence as a whole, then we need the folks who have caused sexual harm, are causing sexual harm, to have the opportunity to learn otherwise, to be able to learn to be accountable for their actions, to be able to understand the harmful impact that their actions have caused and to have the opportunity to repair the harm they've caused to the best of their ability, to have the opportunity to put in the work to change those behaviors going forward and not do more harm. I think, you know, having that opportunity is where healing can be done for those who are causing the harm. And I think broader strokes, I think we also need to normalize, you know, some of what Carly was getting at in terms of consent and how little we actually talk about these things in a widespread way. We need to normalize that folks sexually assault others and may not even realize it like on a daily basis like we do not have a deep enough understanding of consent as a culture and as individuals of what it means to like practice consent consent is a practice too you know and furthermore i think to like really address the violence you know we have to look at you know the systems perpetuating it leading back to white supremacy colonialism these things that you know sexual violence is not just about the individuals involved but the environment and the conditions that allow for it to happen that's where restorative justice and transformative justice really come in because they are seeking to address these larger root issues 
and not just individual moments or of harm, but like these much larger active structures of harm, unlike our current systems. Thank you both so much for bringing such wisdom and knowledge and courageous experience into this world and for sharing that with me and our listeners. But since we are short on time, Cage, if I can invite you briefly to share, where do you see restorative justice headed in Maine? And what can our listeners do to get involved? Big question. I mean, I see it as <laughs> the future that's that we're moving toward. That's not to say it's new. It's obviously, you know, vital to I think to acknowledge too in this in this show that you know restorative justice and its concept comes from long ago circle keeping practices by indigenous folks globally. So really, like this is a making a return to how things have been done long before there were ever police or prisons. So I see us making a return to implementing these practices. And, you know, particularly in, in this region, myself and other restorative justice practitioners are really trying to put in the work to hopefully have a, you know, program offered that will allow for multiple approaches. We see that as imperative, leaving like no person who desires a process unserved. That means a variety of processes. I like to think of it as three buckets, <laughs> harm repair in, you know, in terms of involving both survivor and the person who caused harm being a harm repair process, and then a restorative process in which the survivor desires a process, but the person who caused harm is not willing to participate. And then a restorative process in which the person who caused harm desires a process, but the survivor does not wish to participate. And we believe that each of those offerings is essential. That is a point of contention and can cause some upheaval for folks. But that is what restorative justice looks like <laughs> fundamentally. You know, we don't believe that any human has the right to determine the trajectory of another's life, to have jurisdiction over the sovereignty of another person. So, you know, someone desiring to take accountability for wrongdoings and putting in the work to learn and change behaviors, who are we to stand in the way and discourage that? if our overall goal is to reduce and prevent further violence, you know, so that is my hope is to have a program like that in Maine exist uh, statewide, <laughs> nationally, <laughs> you know, the call to action, I think is, you know, getting in touch with your local RJ orgs, how can, you know, asking how you can support that work, learning more yourself about restorative justice and transformative justice, embodying those values, practicing it in your daily life. In terms of, you know, some of our greatest barriers, funding is difficult um, because we realize we don't want this work to be systems-based. Um, in order to be serving the countless number of survivors who do not utilize our legal systems currently, we need to be having another means of, of funding this work and offering these processes. So, you know, we are seeking non-systems-based funding, consistent funding, this is community-based work. So, you know, like that said, if you find yourself with a monumental amount of disposable income or <laughs> know of other funding sources, get in touch because all of those things are going to be instrumental in actually offering this to folks who currently are left completely unsupported by our systems. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you. Carly McCullough, Cage Johnson, sharing such wisdom and knowledge and experience with us. Um, so much to learn, so much to do. And I'll give a plug for Ampersand's restorative responses to sexual harm training coming up, uh, 40 hour one. And you can check out more at ampersandsrj.org. Both of you, thank you so much. And I also need to thank bluesman Samuel James for his gift of music that opens and closes each episode in our series. And to Luke Brown, our sound engineer, I'm Leo Hilton. We are Justice Radio.